The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn this morning to the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 8, especially focusing on the text about the promises of God. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The Christian lives by the word of God, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And one very important aspect of God's word is the promises of the Bible. Verse 4 calls them, God's precious and very great promises. Every person who has come to Jesus Christ and who has received salvation and eternal life has come by God's promises, by believing God's wonderful gospel promises held out through Jesus Christ. We've just experienced Advent and Christmas and that ringing declaration, he shall be named, be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we just think of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies focusing on the Messiah to come, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, all, all the rich promises of God. God is always faithful to His promises. Some of you may be making promises for the new year, but none of us is entirely faithful to our promises or to our word. We all fall short, but God is true to His promises completely. And one of the the key elements to living the Christian life is learning to depend on God's promises. This is the message that we want to see from our text this morning, living by the promises of God. We see, first of all, that we come to enter into the knowledge of the true God 
by the means of God's promises. We enter into the Christian life by the promises of God. Notice in verse 4, this verse about these precious promises, it says that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. They have escaped. Peter is saying these Christians have been transformed or transferred. He's referring to that fundamental change that takes place, that conversion. And for them, it's already happened. They've come to Christ. And for everyone who believes in Christ, that's true. It may not be a dramatic experience. It may not be like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. But Scripture says it is fundamental. It's radical. It uses the terminology of being born again or born from above. We've passed from darkness into light, Scripture says, or from death into life. Galatians 5.24 puts it in these terms, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Another pointer talking to the sinful desire that is so much a problem in all of our lives and in the world. And that verse in Galatians doesn't say that we're now sinless, having come to, Christ, to trust in Christ, but it is describing a great change. Or Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Many passages in the New Testament speak of this great change of, of regeneration or conversion. But how does this change take place? It happens by the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life as a person comes to understand and believe and receive by faith the promises of God, by trusting God's promise that we read earlier. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In fact, we could talk about the promise. In Ephesians 2.12, it talks about the covenants of the promise just looking at the Bible as a whole and saying it's essentially one massive promise given through Jesus Christ. And so you enter into the Christian life by trusting God concerning this basic gospel promise to save you through Jesus Christ. Notice that it is not by God's commandments that we enter into a right relationship to God. It's not by doing our best to obey God, God's commands. And why is that? It's because sin gets in the way. We can't do it. We fail miserably. And yet, Scripture tells us God's law is good and holy and just and righteous, but the law, it says, does not give life. The law can never reconcile sinful human beings with the holy and righteous God. So if you think that somehow by living a good enough life, you can be in a right relationship to God. Scripture says it's impossible. You need the promises of God in Jesus Christ. You need what Jesus did and offers to us. The law can never reconcile sinful human beings with the holy God. We need the promises. And so verse 4 says that through them, these precious promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's Peter's way of speaking of 
the Christian's union with Jesus Christ through faith. We, we become united to Jesus Christ by God's grace through faith, through the new birth, so that now Jesus Christ dwells in us and is producing His likeness in us. We become partakers of God's holiness through the very great and precious promises of God, faith taking hold of God's promises. I know a pastor in the Midwest who played high school basketball at Bob's small high school. They didn't cut anyone who tried out for the basketball team. I would have liked that in seventh grade when I got cut. I didn't even try after that. But for the games, they only had the top 10 players dress in uniform for the game. The rest were self-designated as scrubs, Bob says. Bob was a scrub, so he never got to play in a game. But as the season proceeded and as the final game approached, the coach in practice one day told the team, all of you will dress for the final game and all of you will play. And Bob went home thrilled. His father was six feet seven and had played as a star player at Iowa State. Obviously, Bob wasn't quite living up to his dad's stature, but his dad was certainly going to come to the final game to see his son play. So when the day came, all the scrubs were in uniform on the bench. Some of them, the uniform's pretty makeshift, but the game ended up being closer than the coach had expected. And as you might guess the ending of the story, Bob wasn't put in. The coach didn't keep his promise, and Bob was thoroughly crushed. You'll be glad to know he's recovered by now after all these years. But my point is that God always keeps his promises, and the promises of God all center around the astounding person and work of Jesus Christ and the good news that is declared in his name and on the basis of his person and his work. God's promise, we hear again and again, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Or the promise that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Or in Acts 13.38, Paul states, Let it be known to you that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Think of the freedom that would have broken into people's hearts in those days, as they still does now, trying to live by the law and hearing the gospel that it's by promise. The way to enter into a genuine knowledge of the true God, a knowledge that goes beyond an abstract kind of just thinking about God, a knowledge of God that includes experiential fellowship with the living God and adoption into the family of God, that entrance is only by means of the very great and precious promises of God in the gospel and by trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, we grow in our likeness to Christ by actively trusting God's promises. In other words, not only is entrance to the Christian life by the promises of God, but we grow in the Christian life by actively continuing to trust the promises of God. Look at the logic of verses 3 and 4 of our text. 
His divine power, that's referring to verse 2, Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Think of what a sweeping statement that is. Every believer has everything he or she needs for life and godliness by Christ's divine power that is given to us, all that is needed for godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It's all by His power. It's all because we know Him and walk with Him each day. Verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see the connections of all of this. Promises are a key component to this in the way we appropriate the power of Christ. How important in taking by faith all the resources that Scripture tells us the believer has in Jesus Christ, all the divine power, all the sufficiency, all the strength and help, so that more and more we become like Jesus Christ. We become partakers of the very nature of God. We would distinguish between the incommunicable attributes of God, those things that we do not become like God in His omnipotence. We don't become all-powerful. We don't become like God in His omniscience. We don't know all thing, things. But in the communicable attributes, the, the attributes of God that are implanted in our hearts, the love of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, all of these things, all of this by actively and daily trusting God's promises. It's fun to watch people on climbing walls. Maybe you've seen one of those walls. We sometimes go to the Spooky Nook Sports Center to watch our grandkids' basketball games. And if you go into the front doors, on your left, there's this giant climbing wall. And you see kids, you know, way up at the top, 20 feet, 30 feet up there at this climbing wall. And these walls have these little handholds or footholds that you climb. And if you're skillful, you make it to the top. Of course, there's a safety harness that's attached in case you fall, so it's safe. But it's interesting, I've noticed near the top of these walls, there's often a section where the wall actually slants backward the wrong way. So the climber's there hanging by his fingers, climbing up a very difficult part, trying to make it to the top. Well, think of the promises of God as the handholds of faith. The promises are the way the Christian appropriates God's provision for us, for life and godliness, really for everything we need in all aspects of our lives, at every time in our lives, in every season, for every extremity. As we live the Christian life, we are being called to continue trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ, our Lord, as he is held forth in God's promises. What a beautiful description of how the Christian life is lived because all God's promises are centered on Christ. They have all been procured by Christ, by his sinless life on our behalf, by his substitutionary atoning death on our behalf, by his resurrection. All has been procured for us by Jesus and given to us through his riches. Think about this. Much of the daily battle in the Christian's life is for holiness in heart and life, both in our inward man, our attitude, our thoughts, our desires, and in the outworking in our lives. And that involves seeking to actively 
believe God's promises at any particular moment in our life, every day. It's a battle to believe the promises of God, trusting Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the word of God, whatever your need of the moment might be. Maybe it's for strength in weakness. That's common for all of us because we're all very weak. Maybe it's for courage in a situation where you're given to fear. Maybe it's for consolation and comfort in the face of great suffering or loss. Maybe it's for power from Jesus to love him more than the very tempting idols of this world. Maybe it's for resolve to do the will of God when you know the will of God, even when it's hard. The list goes on and on of the various situations where Christians must believe the promises of God in the face of the lies of this world. Often you may feel like that climber who is on the part of the wall and you feel like you're hanging by your fingertips, hanging onto the promises of God. I encourage you, keep trusting Jesus through his promises. And scripture says he will hold you fast. When I think of this calling to hold fast to God's promises, I think in the past few weeks I've been thinking of Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Church in China. Many of you have heard about that or read about that and of the recent crackdown at the beginning of this year on the churches in China, and you might know that Pastor Yi was arrested by the communist government on December 9th. But before he was arrested, he had written a, he calls it a declaration of faithful disobedience, not disobedience to God, but disobedience to the government that he was under, a declaration of faithful disobedience. You can go online and read the whole thing. It's a very stirring document to think of him writing this, knowing this could happen any time, and it did occur. He was arrested, and who knows when he'll be released. But this declaration was released after he was arrested, and he speaks boldly in this of the realities of the kingdom of Christ that is supreme over the governments of this world. And he rebukes the evil of a persecuting government, but he states that his primary goal and prayer is that all people would hear the gospel and turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But let me just read a little bit, just a few sentences that are at the end of this declaration. And he begins by speaking to the government. He says, he starts, he says, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. No one can raise me from the dead. Interesting statement. And then he says, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant and I am in prison because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. The Lord's servant, Wang Yi. Clearly, these are the words of a man who is living by the unseen realities of the word of God, the promises of God in Christ, and not living merely by 
the lies and idolatries of this present age. And so we grow in likeness to Christ by actively trusting God's promises. But finally, number three, all our striving in the Christian walk is founded on God's promises. All our striving, and I'm using the word striving in a good sense, all of our fighting the spiritual battles of life, all of our running the race set before us, all of our battling in all of our problems with our remaining sin, it's all founded on God's promises. Look at the connection with verse 4 with that of verse 5. We've seen the precious promises in verse 4, and then verse 5 begins in this way. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and then there's this list of eight virtues, eight representative virtues, starting with faith, ending with love, first and last for importance, but all of them important and not meant to be an exhaustive list. They're representative of the character of Christ, which he is imparting to us, but we have to strive to produce by the power of the Spirit as we trust in Jesus Christ. Peter is saying there must be a connection between our pressing on in holiness and our trust in the promises. The two are not at odds. It's not as if it's one or the other. No, it's both and. As the old hymn puts it, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And Peter lists these eight Christ-like virtues and said, these are the things you will be striving to put on in your life if you have entered into a true and real knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Things like self-control. That's probably on the list because in that culture and day, just like in our, our day and age, sexual temptation was all around. It was in the society. And so it was a very strong temptation and they needed to exercise self-control. Or steadfastness is on, is on the list. The word means literally bearing up under suffering and hardship. Clearly, a Christ-like characteristic. That's how Jesus lived, bearing up under suffering for our sake. Or godliness is a word that's there. The, the root of the word godliness is actually the same root as the word worship. It speaks of a God-word orientation of our lives, that godliness flows from being oriented to our God. Or the word brotherly love is there, Philadelphia, focusing on the calling to live in Christian fellowship and to love one another and genuinely care for one another and support one another. This wonderful description of these, and Peter arranges them almost like a a stairway that you go from one to the next, but it's not like you start with one and end with love. No, you do them all. Peter is not talking about merely external legalistic behavior. He's talking about from the heart, change lives. He's saying that a life founded on the promises of the gospel will be growing in fruitfulness. And finally, in fact, after this verse, in verse 8, after this list, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and that shows you that we don't arrive until glory, but hopefully we're growing in them. If they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw back in verse 4 that the root problem is sinful desire, the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. But believers, we see, have been given a new heart. 
a new set of desires. We've become partakers of the nature of God. Yes, we still battle the old, but we must give all effort to put on the new. We must strive. We must fight. We must war to follow Jesus Christ in the way of the cross. In other words, Peter is calling these Christians to serious, diligent effort in cultivating godliness, but he's also saying we can only do that on the basis of what God has already done in us and for us in Jesus Christ. The promises are the foundation of our striving. Scripture has this in many places. Just one example is Romans 6, where we see Paul say, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He's talking about a The Christian's past experience, we died with Christ. And on the basis of that, he goes on to say, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider yourselves is an accounting term. Some translations have reckon yourself. It almost like says credit it to your account. Believe it that you consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. By faith, take that promise. And then verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal mortal body to obey its passions. There's that same idea of sinful desires. Don't let sin reign. Why? Because you were crucified with Christ. You died and you've been raised. That's the word of God. That's the promise of God. And so you see our striving and our fighting for greater conformity to God's will is not based on some kind of mere positive thinking. It's founded on the great and precious promises of God in Christ. And so if we have trusted Jesus Christ, then God says we died to Christ. And that is the reality, and we're called to act on that reality. And as our minds are more conformed to the Word of God and believe the Word of God and believe the promises of God, so then our lives will be transformed. What a beautiful thing it is to think about seeing the grace and glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the Word of God. Don't we all long for that, to more deeply see in Scripture who Jesus Christ is, and then we will be more able to worship and adore Him and trust and obey Him and to love and reverence Him in our daily walk And as a result, as we look at Jesus Christ, as Scripture reveals him, our lives will be changed and transformed. Reading Pastor Yee's declaration made me think, how does a person show such courage and strength of conviction? Don't we think about that? What if I would be in that situation? And we all like to think, well, I would stand firm. Hopefully we would, but not an easy thing. And I I believe... The answer is simple but profound in a way. The answer is it's because Pastor Yi truly believes the promises of God. He's not without sin, but he believes the promises of God. He sees the word of God and more solid and lasting and true than all the lies of the world. And so I ask you, are you resting in God's promises? It said when the famous explorer Zebulon Pike first saw the famous mountain peak, Pike's Peak, that is named after him, he declared to the people with him, he said, no one will ever climb it. Interesting. 
He had to eat his words. I don't know when the first person was who climbed Pike's Peak, but as you know, people climb Pike's Peak now all the time. They run up it. They drive trucks up it in races. There are roads. There's the Cog Railroad. There are half a million tourists that go up Pike's Peak a year. Zebulon Pike was not right. Well, I use that illustration as an analogy for Jesus Christ who is the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has, in a sense, climbed the mountain of sin and death and hell for those who will trust in him for our sake. And now he invites sinners to trust in him. He promises forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And above all, that enemies of God, which is what all of us are in our natural state, that we should be made adopted daughters and sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ because he has ascended, he has climbed the mountain, he has blazed the trail, his sufficiency is there for any who would come. May you trust in the exceeding great and precious promises of Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word which is the rock and foundation of our lives. We pray that you would hold us fast in the year to come. We thank you that even though we can't know what tomorrow brings or will bring, and we don't really want to know it, it is better for us not to know it. We thank you that you promise to go with us. And whatever happens, that you are with us. We treasure that promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.